0: I and then I and and na and nine and nine na nine and nine and nine and And I did Hee did hee daa hee daa hee daa Hee and I and a nine I and and a nine and I night <laughs> and I and and I and I I and I I I I I I and I I did it I did it I I I I I I I I and I It I It I boker Tove and happy hanukkah hanukkah
1: sameach night six night six day five night six amazing amazing magical time in the world in the world and um here to be with you all. What a mitzvah, what a mitzvah, to, to, to join me so we could learn together. Um, I'm very excited, very excited to see you all. So thank you for the gift of uh, showing up. And um, um, and I hope you will uh, take some notes as we go um, so that uh, you can th- uh, think about what you want to add to our our, uh, our our learning here. Number 24, can you believe we're at 24? <laughs> In the 24th 24th Malacha, we look at korea, korea, which is the process of tearing and unsewing and ripping. You knew this was coming from last week. The coverings of the mishkan of the tabernacle were fabricated by sewing different panels together. To repair a covering, one would have to tear damaged areas to fix and re it. The, this malacha is the converse of the previous one we talked about last week, tofer, which means to unite disparate articles together through sewing. Since all of the malachot are constructive in nature, the type of tearing that would fall under the heading of this malacha would include only tearing down for the purpose of re For this reason, tearing simply to destroy would be rabbinically problematic, but tearing only to re would be prohibited on the biblical level. An example of the latter might be tearing open an envelope. This is done not only to access what is inside, but also to create a new container where other items may be stored. Korea applies to pliable things, but not to firm things like metal. It also doesn't apply to food, thankfully. For example, ripping off a piece of challah for Shabbat dinner is not a violation of Korea. The notion that we're confronted by the broken and the repaired, the ripped and the fixed, embraces a certain dichotomy or duality as to how the world should appear. Such ideas about order and perfection may be helpful at times, and alternatively, may be destructive at times. We address the question of duality as it relates to our perceptions of what is positive and what is negative on an emotional level and in our relationship with the physical world. We have the power to use these questions to navigate our relationship with the concept of perception itself. What is a perfect home? What is a perfect face? What breaks in a home need to be fixed and which breaks need not be fixed? Which body imperfections need to be fixed and which embraced? Dualism provides a matrix for philosophical analysis. In modern philosophy, there are three different types of dualism. The first, substance dualism. This distinguishes between the mental realm And the material realm, the two never overlap, okay? This is the first, substance dualism, right? There is body and there is soul. There is mind and there is matter. They are completely separate realms. Our second form of dualism is property dualism. This posits that the body and the mind are both part of one material substance. Consciousness is organized as it is... precisely because of the, uh, of the material world. Consciousness is organized as it is precisely because of the material world. Okay? So here there is a duality, and yet it is all part of one material substance, even though there is a duality of consciousness of, of, the, of the objective world and the objective world, but nonetheless, it is all still a part of the material substance. And the third form of duality is predicate dualism. This is kind of complicated, so put on your seatbelts. This theory holds that mental predicates can't be reduced to physical predicates. An example would be like this. God is good, might be a concept that we think about, but as to which one cannot reduce the act of being good into a physical thing, a predicate. Okay, so there is a, 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 a duality, God is something, God is good. That means there's two things, there's God and there's good. It's a concept we can think about, but we can't actually reduce the act of being good into a separate thing, even though there's a duality. Now, in contrast, there's three different types of monism. Monism, By right? dualism means there's two different things. Monism, there's ultimately one reality. The first is called idealistic monism. Only the mental realm exists. We call this consciousness. There is nothing that exists besides consciousness. This is called idealistic monism. There is no duality in the world. The second, materialistic monism. There's only the physical realm. This is the opposite. Idealistic monism says there's really only the spirit, right? Yes, we, we can touch this thing called table. Yes, I can hold this pencil. I can see you, right? But it, it's, it, 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 it's an illusion. There is no self and other. There's only one spiritual reality. The physical is all merely a product of perception of the spiritual reality. The second is the opposite. Materialistic monism says, no, nope, there's only the concrete. There's my flesh. There's my table. I am no more than my brain, and my brain is physical. There is no spirit or consciousness beyond the brain. The third is neutral monism, which says there's only one substance, but it is neither mental nor physical, although those emerge from that third or maybe first substance. Okay. I know that's a lot. Dualism and monism. Where do we fall out on these um, on these paradigms? So what does it mean on a metaphysical level? Or if we were to consider supernal realities beyond the material world. If all is God, as many theologians suggest, then we embrace a perspective of monism. We might call that pantheism. We might call that penentheism, a view that considers God to be absolutely imminent and where the world is entirely contained within God and God within the world. If there is body and soul, God and world, then we embrace a dualism which describes God as having both imminent and transcendent characteristics. Some have described Jewish thought as pseudo-dualistic, in that we are always trying to repair the world and unify God's name during the week, dualism, and yet on Shabbat we seek a monistic experience of devekut, of clinging or untying of separateness. Just to rehash that last phrase, because I think it's important, that is to say Six days of the week, we embrace a dualistic philosophy. There's self and other, God and world, right? In order that we can repair the brokenness of the world as a separate entity. And then on Shabbat, we move towards monism. Nope, actually, there's nothing to repair. It's all just one. It's all just one whole. The distinction between dualism and monism is related to the process of differentiation, the process of recognizing distinctions between items, concepts, and facts. So considering the Malacha of Korea, taking one thing and making it two, raises the question of what we can truly know beyond the one, in this case, beyond the singularity of oneself, of one's mind. In Kant's renowned work, The Critique of Pure Reason, he discusses how the mind organizes experiences in two different ways. Firstly, the way the world appears to oneself secondly the way one thinks about the way the world appears to oneself the noumena are the things that exist regardless of how our minds interpret them the phenomena are the realities that are interpreted from our minds kant's suggestion radical in his time was that nothing objective can truly be known the noumenal material world. The only knowledge we can ever truly hold is that which is presented from our minds, the phenomenal mental world. All data is contextualized as it passes through the subjective filters in the mind. The true, quote unquote, true external reality is always limited as it passes through the mind and is never truly known. That's a lot to unpack if you think about the implications of that. So here we discuss notions of idealism, the idea that the world is truly composed of mental ideas and not of physical things. It's a fundamentally different way to conceive reality from what is most common. Kant, in his transcendental idealism, never assumes that external reality does not exist, nor that it is not important, But rather, just that we will never be able to transcend our mental limitations. For example, he's not saying that human suffering on a physical level doesn't matter or that we can't truly know who suffers. Like, if you've ever heard the absurd claim uh, by uh, 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 the absurd carnivorous claim that who knows that an animal is really suffering when you stick a knife into it, it can't tell me that, right? As if we don't have enough data from squeals or from bleeding that pain or suffering is, is is occurring, and you know another way to think of this: if you if you think back to hospitals, how did um how did uh doctors know how to give you pain meds back in the day? Not so long ago, not so long ago, the doctors thought what objectively the pain would be. Okay, we moved away from that. And now it it is a patient-driven process. Of course, there's medical limitations on pain medicine. But what do you do? You get one of those happy, sad charts. And they say, where are you on the one to 10? Are you a three? Okay, you'll get some moderate pain meds. Are you an eight? Okay, we'll give you more serious pain meds. It's a patient-driven process based upon the subjective experience of suffering, of pain. They understand that objectively it's going to fall within this category. But number one, people are going to experience that pain differently, and they're going to have different pain tolerance. And number two, there may be things being experienced that they don't know, and uh, they want to help you manage that pain. Myself, personally, I'm not in the extremely low pain tolerance. I would say I'm on the, on the, on the below average level. I would want more pain meds than less. My wife, she has a C-section. And the next day, she's like running around, doing things. It's it's, a very high pain tolerance. Um, So uh, Kant further distinguishes epistemologically between two other crucial categories. First, a priori propositions, which don't require experience to know, right? Things that we know to be true without experiencing them, like two plus two is four. Actually, it's true. You can experience two plus two is four, but really you don't need to experience it. It logically makes sense without experience. And a posteriori proposition, such as claims like all dogs are happy. All dogs are happy. Is that a true claim? It requires experiential justifications to be true. There's no logic to the question, all dogs are sad, or all dogs are happy, or existentially humans are, are are suffering or existentially all humans seek meaning right these are not logical propositions we have to experience them to to understand if they're true or not another way to talk about experience is empiricism right it's um uh you um what's that what's that famous phrase that um oh man who was it ruth bader ginsburg who said it and no, i'm blanking on who said it one of you will tell me that the phrase that uh, one person's story is not data or one person's story is not, um, uh, yeah. I, it, it, I, it, that's basically the point, right? That you can't be like, "Oh, uh, I got a black friend, and my black friend told me X, Y, Z, and so that's now the truth, right? Of what black people think, right? Or like, I talked to a woman; she explained to me that she thinks, "Oh, there is no gender discrimination. It's all a lot of, uh, it's all a lot of hype or something." You know, like that's actually not data. That's a person's story. Data is an empirical. Um, research that's going to have a lot of uh, different measures put in place to ensure you have accurate data. And so sometimes you will see people who will pull out a fringe story to try to explain a larger larger reality um, in a way that would be inaccurate. And so when we talk about experience to prove truth, we're not just saying my personal experience leads me to this reality, but rather experience in a measurable kind of way. Um, a measurable kind of way. So what does it mean to quote unquote, know something or know someone? Ever think about that? When we say, oh, I know him or I know that. We mean something different when we say we know how to do some practical thing than when we say we know a certain fact or when we say we know a thing, we know a place, we know a person, we know sadness. For example, if I say, I know how to do the laundry, or I know how to make oatmeal. I'm saying something very different than, I know, I know Andrea, I know Barbara, right? We're saying something, what do we mean by that? No, in French, if we have any any uh, speakers of French here, this is savoir versus connaître. Sauvoir, I would say, je sais, je sais, I know a fact, je connais, I know this person, or I know this place. In Hebrew, we say, ani Versus ani makir, ani I know a fact. Ani makir, I know a person. Right? It's different ways of knowing. Interpersonal knowledge is different from factual knowledge. When the Torah says someone knows someone, what does that mean? It means sexual relations, right? Yeah. In Genesis four one, it says vehad yada et Adam knew Eve, and she gave birth to Cain. He knew her, and she gave birth to Cain. So that's, there's a lot to unpack there. We're not going to do that. But what does it mean that sexual relations is expressed as knowledge to know someone, right? That's very interesting, that knowing, we think of something cognitive, right? And sexuality, we think of something physical or, or behavioral, so, that's, so that, there's a lot to think about there. What does it mean to say, I know celebrity X, but I don't know him or her, or I know about him, but I don't actually know him? Truly knowing each other requires a relationship, some symmetry, some mental connection. I can't say that I know, that President Obama and I know each other, um, if after all, All we did was meet briefly in a way that I will always remember and that he will immediately forget, (laughs) right? If I'm in a line of people and I have my 30 seconds, I will never forget that 30 seconds with President Obama. And by the time the next person walked up, he immediately forgot my presence. So do we know each other? (laughs) What does it mean to say that we know our parents? Do we know our parents, living or deceased? Do we know our child? Or how about that we knew someone 20 years ago? Oh yeah, I used to know him. How did we know them but not know them now? A consequence of knowing someone might mean that we have access to predicting their behavior or their disposition. Right? I know them, oh, I know them. I know how they work or I know what they will do. What is it What is it that I know? I can't know their subjective experience, but is do I know um, what, um, something uh, in the realm of predictability? Here about intersubjectivity, but not, here, here we're talking about intersubjectivity, but not one that is totally cognitive, but also emotional and social. The assumption here is that in a quote unquote other and a quote unquote self, once again, uh, dualism once again. But what happened, what happened, okay, now, now, what happens in care work? We're all familiar with the idea of care work. Indeed, there are unique ethical entanglements that can be found in care work. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever been a caregiver? By caregiver, I mean, I don't mean like partially providing care, but immersed immersed in in caregiving okay um indeed there's unique ethical entanglements that emerge here in care work for a parent how many of you were a caregiver for a parent for a child was anyone ever full-time taking care of a child for a spouse anyone ever full-time a caregiver for a spouse who was dying and or in hospice or sick or for a stranger yeah, Eileen, for a stranger. In dependency work, new questions emerge about the boundaries and limits of responsibility. One often must put the dependence's need before their own and not have the luxury of thinking of one's own rights. This sort of intersubjectivity calls to mind Martin Buber's conception of the I relating to the Thou, an approach to meaningful human relationship that depends on each partner in the relationship, understanding and relating to the other on a deep level. Here we can also reflect on Levinas' notion of response ethics. My existence comes into being in response to the other is what Levinas argues. This philosophy is about radical alterity, that the other is infinitely other, and how it would be impossible to exhaust one's knowledge of the other. We can also reflect on care ethics as developed by thinkers such as psychologist Carol Gilligan. Here we see how care, relationships, and responsibilities carry more weight than abstract rights and concrete principles. Just to to unpack that a little bit more, and early on she called this feminist uh, psychology in response to a male-driven field, um, in particular in in moral development, where the idea was the most morally advanced person was a person of principles, of conscience. What does it mean to be a a moral hero? You live by, by elevated principles. Carol Gilligan challenged that because empirically they found that women ranked lower than men on that and she said it's simply not possible that women are less morally advanced than men and so she said you're measuring principles we need to measure relationships we need to measure relationships Um, and so care ethics is about for Carol Gilligan, moving beyond the notion of abstract rights of the caregiver and and, um, rights of the receiver of care into a new model of, of, of care built upon relationships and responsibilities. How can I decide to spend more time, resources, and energy Caring for a parent when I know I can save 100 human lives or 10,000 animals for the same amount of money. We may not have a good moral justification for doing so, yet we trust our moral intuition, right? I trust my moral intuition that it's more important to take care of my spouse or my parent, or my child, even though all those resources could save way more people. On the far extreme view of moral intuitions, moral intuitions are infallible, the voice of God, right? What I, it's when people say, trust your gut. How do you know what's true and right and good? Trust your gut. Your gut knows the truth, right? That's one extreme of how moral intuitions are, are valued. On the other extreme, moral, intuition, moral intuitions that can't stand up to the critique of moral reason are literally worthless, I would argue that in Judaism, we embrace a middle spot, that moral intuitions are neither everything, we don't just say trust your gut as if it's the voice of God, nor are they nothing, but rather somewhere in between. We give weight to our moral intuition. We do listen to our gut, and yet we also listen to advisors and friends and to the voice of reason and to empiricism. We don't just have one voice that enters our moral calculations. For example. We suspect it may be speciesism to engage in violent medical testing on smart, non-human mammals that would suffer greatly, as would their families, instead of on a severely cognitively impaired orphan who no one would mourn for. Let me just state that again because that was a mouthful. We might think it's speciesism to suggest that it is better to engage in extremely violent medical testing on smart, non-human mammals that would suffer greatly as would their families, instead of on a severely cognitively impaired orphan who no one would mourn for. Which is to say, on the level of reason, this mammal has higher reason than the human being. And on the level of relationships, more, it, more sentient beings would suffer than the orphan, and yet our deep moral intuitions tell us, I think most of us, that the human being, even if even if less cognitively capable and with less suffering, has human dignity that we should prioritize. And in that sense, we can think about the significance of human relationships in terms of how they focus on the individuality of each person, and therefore how we distinguish between one person and another, just as we distinguish between two pieces of material when we rip them apart. By the way, the, something very strange happened uh, a few days ago. Um, I was with uh, I was with two little uh, uh, two little boys of brown, who have brown skin, and they and they saw two little children with black skin, and um, one of one of the little boys with brown skin said are those monkeys and he wasn't making a joke he said are those monkeys i don't know if he had never seen children with 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 black skin or um if he thought they weren't human or if he has any even conceptualization of what a human being is um but it was very startling that um a, a non-white person would see another non-white person um, as something fundamentally different than himself and myself, you know. Uh, I, I mean, we could bring Piaget in here, but he also—I was—I was putting a little nutrients into a into a plant, and he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Feeding the plant." He said, "Why would you feed it? It's not real." And so he didn't have a notion of what is alive and what's not alive, what is real and not real. Um, the idea of food or feeding something that's not human. So it's very interesting in child development, the sense of who is human and who is not, what is alive and what is not. In any case, here, wow, I'm I'm long-winded. I'm I'm almost to my end here. Sorry about that. Um, In any case, um, we have these moral intuitions that we have more responsibility to humans, even humans that are very different from us, skin color, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, cognitive level. Um, And yet we know that even the person who's fundamentally so different from us in many ways um, is something different than an animal who may even be more advanced than that human in certain ways in their pain experience or in their cognitive capacity or whatever the case is. And yet we have this moral intuition that tells us to save that human instead of that animal. Now, that's not always true, obviously. Someone might choose to save their dog over their neighbor, right? They run back into the building not to save their neighbor human, but to save their dog from their burning apartment, right? Okay, perhaps for that reason, we symbolize our grief when a close relative dies by performing kriya. We talked about, we talked about this last week a little bit. From the same root as koreya, our, our, our malacha today right we tear crea we rip our garment or um, more liberally we, we rip a ribbon um, and so we're ripping our clothing conversely though we can consider that when a baby is born as we discussed last week as well by cesarean by by cesarean uh, by a c-section a type of tearing apart brings forth life and with just as we rip to mourn death we rip to bring out life and with that new life we have a new opportunity to form a new relationship with a new individual. The world has been ripped and torn apart by disasters and violence. By the way, I want to say so, uh, something else. And if any of you have ever, um, um, as, uh, as adults, as mature adults, started a new romantic relationship, you might be able to shed light on this. And that what does it mean? to evolve into a marriage or into a partnership. When two 20 year olds meet, I think they believe that they will fundamentally become new people through their union, right? They're embarking on a new life. Maybe they're gonna to move to a new city or move to a new home. Maybe they're going to understand on some level that their life is gonna shift in drastic ways based upon their partnership. Whereas let's say two people who are 75 or 80, Um, decide to start a new partnership in a way where they basically know they will remain the same, right? Okay, we will affect each other, but I really want to be me. I don't want to, you know, um, uh, what does it mean to not give birth to a new self in the birth of a new relationship, right? The first time someone has a child, the child is obviously born, but in some sense, the parent is born as well. Right, the parent, the, the the child gives birth to a parent, right, and that that person is now a parent for the first time, and now uh, one understands their whole reality has shifted. Or at a wedding, at a wedding, many um, very young people would understand they're really someone different. Jewishly, we that's why we go to the mikvah before a wedding traditionally, because it's like a con- or a conversion as it says in the Talmud, a person is is reborn. <laughs> We're on Yom Kippur. It's a rebirth because it's almost like a, a, a radically new beginning in a journey. In a way that when I was younger, I loved that. When I was young, I loved new beginnings. Now that I'm a little older, I actually don't crave it. I actually love stability, um, and, and that, that's that's just my personal stage in life. I used to love oh, a new city, a new job, a new like a new experience. Like I, I the novelty has really kind of worn away. I guess I, I hope I'm not getting too old and cynical here. Right? <laughs> I know some of you will probably laugh at that. But I really, uh, I, I love the consistent. I love the stable. I, you know, it's uh, like novelty is fun in a movie. But then you turn it off and you go back to your, you know, Um. in any case here. OK. The world has been, OK, so here to wrap up, the world has been ripped and torn apart by disasters and violence. Our job is to rip out the destruction and to repair it. This repair should take place within the self, within the family, the community, society, and the world at large. It becomes ever more complicated and yet powerful at the same time, given how interwoven and interconnected all the beauty and all the destruction are. You know, it's, it's kind of like, um, I've always wondered this. Let's say you wanted to go back to the past and just pull out one thing that you realize changed the whole story right? It's like in a, like someone said something to someone and you want to pull that moment out because it fundamentally changed everything, right? But you realize that actually going back and pulling out a moment would not just change that piece. It would in fact change everything. So what does it mean to repair something when actually you don't just repair a piece, you're changing the whole? We can embrace the paradox that in our work to repair, we have our own unique piece that is separate from the rest, dualism, and that this piece is our unique work and sacred responsibility. And yet we can also embrace the oneness of it all and how we must collaboratively unite to see how we can repair through allyship and partnership. On Shabbat, we reflect on this holy work and on the duality and unity of all existence. Once again, we see how the microcosm experienced in life on Shabbat can inform us about the macrocosm of the universe and our responsibility within this world. Okay, friends, I'm going to pause there. Let's, uh,
0: I'd love to hear from you.
2: Shmulee, I have, I have a question.
0: Great. Hi, yeah,
2: I just have a question uh, to go back to Kant. I mean, literally, <laughs> I read Kant when I was a sophomore in college. That's over 56 years ago. So I would not say that I have an operating understanding. But when you said that Kant is saying that we cannot tr- transcend our ideal and we can't transcend our human limitations, right, in perceiving reality. Is that the same or similar to what Einstein is saying in the theory of relativity, that the observer is always a function of the reality observed?
1: Um, Well, um, it's a wonderful question. and, and, And the easy answer is, I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't I don't I, I I've read a lot of Kant um, and and I understand very little of the science that Einstein talks about. So the easy answer is I have no idea. Um, my second answer is that um, is that um, I don't know. Uh, I, actually, my 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 second answer, which I have a strong hunch to, to uh, I, I'm, I'm uncertain enough that it's, it's not worth saying. Um, so, I, I, so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to be totally unhelpful. Okay. Uh, the, yeah, I, I actually don't know. Thank, thank you. It's a great, it's a great question. Someone else, or maybe there's someone else who who's read Einstein who can reflect on that.
3: Yeah, going back to the part where you talked about being a caretaker, it seems to me that our immediate need is to take care of our family, our parents, our children, our grandparents, whatever. And that has primacy over the world. We do not interact with the world. We talk about repairing the world but it seems to me our world is much smaller, and it revolves around those people that we love.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's that's really um, um, that's really great, and I think that we can sp- think about that both in terms of evolutionary psychology, and in terms of ethics. In evolutionary psychology, we just know that we're hardwired this way, right? We are hardwired. To, um, to live in tribes, and to live in family units, and to take care of those. And this might, I don't mean this cynically, but from an evolutionary psychology perspective, this is about survival. Um, it, it is not altruistic, right? We survive, um, and yet on an ethical level, we do this not out of self-interest, but out of care, out of love. Right now, it's interesting. If we did a comparative uh, societal, um, uh, 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 if we did an analysis of comparative societies, we can see who discards the weak, who discards the weak, and who cares for the weak, right? Because once someone is weak enough. From an evolutionary psychology perspective and Darwinism, there's no interest in continuing to take care of this person. They don't strengthen our whole, they weaken the whole. We need to be ready to be on the move from an attacker. We need to be strong and strengthen those who are strongest, right? The only reason I care for a child who's weak is because I'm investing in them as my caregiver when they're older. But what about a senior? If I, if I have an 85-year-old grandparent why should I take care of them? Why not just leave them off in the woods, right? What what use are they for me? And this is where ethics have to come into play, aside from evolutionary psychology, because if we just went by um, um, if we just went by uh, the needs of survival, um, as soon as someone is um, uh, weakens the whole. They can be discarded. This reminds me of the great teachings around Amalek. You remember Amalek, right? So Amalek, uh, uh, when when uh, is the one that when the Jews are leaving, when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, attacks from the back, right? And attacks what it says there are the weakest ones walking in back. And so the the, the famous uh, commentary there says you have to wipe out wipe out Amalek. It's actually kind of complicated and and disturbing. and um, But you have to actually wipe out Amalek in the world. And so there's two ways to do that. One is to go to war with Amalek, right, where you fight them. The other way is to make sure that the weak don't walk in the back, right? Because if you make sure that the, those who are most weak are not walking in back, then Amalek can never attack. And so that's a different way to protect yourself from Amalek. And so how do we construct a society like that? And why do we do it? Why do we do it? Um, you know, I, I imagine by now everyone has read being mortal, or at least heard of it, uh, at least heard of being mortal, and, 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 um, and how we understand what's happening with, with caregiving to seniors around the world, uh, and to the healthcare system, and why some societies kind of isolate seniors, I don't just mean seniors really, I mean sort of end, uh, closer to end of life, uh, the, the next stage beyond seniors, um, those who really re- uh, rely on care, um, um, and why, um, and why some actually integrate them into family units and into society to ensure their care is provided, and just looking at the pandemic in terms of how many people take really seriously the high percentages of people over seventy who have been affected by the pandemic, and those who diminish the intensity of the dynamic of the pandemic by saying. What? It's just seniors, right? As if to imply, I hear this literally all the time. It says on, on certain news commentators say, look, look at the percentages of, of those who are in senior residences or, or nursing homes. And that tells us we need not be so worried. What I, I, I come to the exact opposite conclusion, right? That we need not be as worried. Um, so, so in any case, um, yeah. So going back to this point around caregiving, um, I think it was Eileen, right? Yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, thank you, Eileen. Uh, going back to this point about caregiving, it really is uh, something our society needs to needs to grapple with um, in a um, in a world that celebrates youth in the ways that we do, in a way that transience has now created distance from parents and children, um, where it is more common for one's child to not live in their city than to live in their city. I mean, I'm not sure if that's factually true. That, that seems to me to be true but actually on, on American demographics it might, it might not be true. like if you look at rural America, I don't know what's happening over there. Um, I know I know when it comes to major cities people people move quite a bit. In any case, this is something we really need to work through.
3: Do you think the pandemic will have changed? people's ideas in regard to taking care of seniors?
1: Wow, wow, that is awesome. That is awesome, um, absolutely. I, I'm actually in the camp at this point uh, that thinks the pandemic changes everything. I, th- I really think, um, you know, there used to be two camps, the ones that said, let's go back to normal and let's go back to something better than normal. And, um, and I don't think either of those are really the paradigms. Um, I mean, yes, better than normal sounds great. But I think, um, I think that the first paradigm is just, will we understand what we're, what we're existing in? Because all of those, all of the consistencies that were put into place uh, are going to have been challenged and uprooted um, in so many profound ways. What's that?
3: A couple of things. The concept of normalcy is a fallacy. Yes, right. So we're never going back to normal. Um, I'm old enough that my dad who lived through the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920 told me about it and gave me some uh, feelings about how he and his family lived through it and how it affected them. And my suspicion is that my children and grandchildren will be affected in the same way.
1: Very well said. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Can
5: I just say that um, just a little bit of what Eileen said about you know what we do affects our families those around us but our choices affect the world be it something small environmentally um, and even you know like something like you 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 choose to throw garbage on the sidewalk somebody trips on it or somebody else says eh I'll throw garbage on the sidewalk so so, everything you do actually has kind of a butterfly effect on the world around us, both in Kabbalistic terms, in terms of spiritual energy, and in physical terms and environmental terms. Just a thought. Oh, and the other thing with pandemic is I was, I'm of the generation that was um, the first cohort for the polio vaccine. I was talking with a friend of mine. And we remember like when we were little, like when I was three, four years old, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't go to parks. We didn't go to swimming pools because the fear was that the child would get polio. And it wasn't until I was in grade one and I could still picture us lining up and getting our shots um, that everything changed. So hopefully we will learn from this pandemic that there's things that need to change. We have to be more careful about spreading even a common cold. We have to think environmentally of the destruction of environment that causes viruses to jump from animals to people. I mean, there's a lot that will have to change.
1: Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for that. And and I think um, just to, just to uh, connect this idea with something we were talking about earlier, dualism versus monism, I think um, the, the notion of interconnectivity and of complex systems theories um, does not lead us in one direction or the other. There can be one reality and thus everything's interconnected or there can be difference and difference be radically interconnected. And so um, um, I think it's absolutely true. And I think we understand this more than ever, just how every action we take um, affects the world. Um, it, has the, it has the profundity to radically uh, affect it, and, to, and, and and that that is both more humbling to be a part of the system and more empowering to be a part of such a system.
6: I have a question about uh, change, uh, right. for instance, with this uh, act, uh, pandemic. Uh, we never were so careful about wearing masks and washing our hands and all that. Uh, at, have there been, have anybody heard of any studies? Um, how has the flu, the cases of just the plain flu, never mind the coronavirus,
4: but the flu, have there been less cases of flu going around? I mean, Significantly reduced. I, um, my works. Uh, has worked for CDC and is in the trial vaccines. And all the doctors are reporting that the significance of the seasonal flu is reduced dramatically because of mask wearing. Mm, very
1: interesting.
3: Yeah, what they thought was going to be um, a duality with overwhelming flu and overwhelming pandemic has not occurred because actual flu is diminished.
1: Very interesting.
5: Yeah. I don't know how, I really don't know how that popped into my
1: head. No, no, Carol, no, it makes sense. In terms of changes, uh, will we move to a reality where masks, even, in a, when, even when everyone's vaccinated on this, when masks are still a, a, uh, considered the new normal, more desirable? I mean, that's a scary reality. Or but, at least, Or at least when you're sick. Yeah, right. Um, uh, or what? How will we think about yeah, people in hospitals, you know, and masks? How will we think about people in prisons? How will we think about teachers? Um, it's it, it's it's very interesting. Um, n- um, now, uh, let me ask a different question, if I may. <clears throat> in terms of ripping, when. When do you when do you experience a problem or imperfection um, or a, a, a misstitch, if you will, that you say you don't need to tear it out, you don't need to rip it out, i.e. when do we un, when do we unsow and rip in order to resow, and when do we keep it in there?
6: When there's a benefit. Say more. If you become a different person, for instance, I'm thinking personally, like Mm. uh, it took me a long time to uh, come to the realization that a divorce would be a better thing for my family than staying together with children, especially. And all of us, you know, at, at one point it came to where it was definitely better for me to take that plunge, rip it apart. As much as I fought it and fought it and fought it for years. Um,
1: yeah. and my hunch, and tell me if 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 your hunch is different. My hunch is that women bear a great feel that burden uh, more heavily than men in terms of walking away from a marriage, in terms of how it affects the family. Is that is that does that sound right to you?
6: I think it's personal. I think, I, I I don't want to put uh, a put that on men, I think there's some, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I think if it's a, a good person, they're going to worry about them. Right.
1: It's right. A- yeah. 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 I hear that, Carol. That's, and that's, um, it's such a, it's such a powerful example. We, I thank you for sharing that because the amount of weight one, one carries to make such a decision to go to, you know, to kind of rip that family apart, but to do it generatively to say, we're going to build something that this can't go on this this is going to be more destructive than actually actively ripping it's the same thing with war when do you say i mean i mean not to compare war with divorce but i mean obviously there is something uh, it, it's embracing conflict essentially when do we say you know what we're going to kill or we're going to attack because we think we'll save life you know uh um, or, or here's, another, here's another kind of very different model. Um, abortion. When does someone say uh, the challenges this fetus will experience when born are significant enough um, or in this early stage to abort versus I would never abort such a child. I'll love him and her exactly how they are. Um, these are very different types of questions. But this idea of kind of ripping um, you know, to some degree, you, you know, really uh, um, uh, are very messy realities. So it's the same with a job. When when do you leave a job? Because you say, um, you, you know, um, you know the, the, the same model. Anyways, I think someone was going to respond. Cheryl, yeah.
4: I thought when you posed the question that you were talking about an accidental, an accidental happening that you would not necessarily move to rip out because in a way and and I guess your abortion example might be you know to, to the to that point that you know there, maybe there was no intentionality in uh, getting pregnant. But you know, once once you have, you know that that maybe you then you go through the decision process. But let's say the decision is yes, I will love that child and keep that child. Um, th- so that's what I was thought thinking you were referring to is the and and uh, an accidental happening of uh, r- uh, ripping that you don't want to unrip that you end up deciding not to unrip. Is that am I? right
1: or wrong or oh oh okay um um okay so what what, what i had in mind although it's interesting where you're going because maybe that's another layer to this was that um that that, that that stage one was i am sewing and i have made an imperfection in what i'm sewing do i keep that imperfection in it or do i go back and unsew it to fix it now, where that becomes more complicated is that when we realize that the, that in life when, when we're building a family, when we're building a society or or the like, um, many people are sewing together and so when we're talking about unsewing, we're not just talking about unsewing some, uh, an imperfection that I made. what happens when it's our spouse who did it or so does God or nature so to speak, that did it right a child that is going to be born with a um, a, 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 some sort of degenerative illness um, and going to suffer through that. Um, who, who misstitched, right? D- did, did God, uh, you know, from a, a, a certain religious perspective, that child is just how God wants that child anyways. From another perspective, this is, uh, this is nature gone wrong that this child is gonna suffer or um, whatever the case is. But I think, Cheryl, I, 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 um, I think you have a different layer here, right?
4: Well, I, I was thinking when you just said something like what you just said. I, I, I was almost thinking about science. Um, let's say an invention, an accidental invention. Let's say Velcro comes to mind. You know that Velcro was created accidentally, and no one has no one has, has striven to undo that because it's been found to be useful. So that's what I, I was just thinking in terms of how you pose your question
0: of accidental
1: happenings. Yeah. Well, you I know, well, so just one, one thing before, Andrea. Um, so, the, uh, so the other things about accidents, accidents are so interesting. One type of accident is like, I meant to drive straight and I accidentally like swerved left. The other type of accident is, I mean to drive straight, but after I drove straight, I realized I should have turned left, right? There's There's your intention from the start and your realization after you have gone forward. And so sometimes what I call an accident is, oh, I shouldn't have done what I thought was right at the time, because now I realize it's wrong. you know. And that, that's like... Um, so anyways, Andrea, go ahead.
2: So this is a whole other aspect to ripping. Um, I, as an artist, have used ripped and torn pieces of paper and fabric for many, many years. Ah. I find those edges much more interesting, for instance, than in a straight cut line. Um, there's something very evocative about them. Um, one piece that comes to mind was a very large piece out of black paper that we often put up in our shul in the back called Mitzrayim, where that rip right down the center was a very narrow rip. So I symbolized that little opening towards you know, liberation and transformation. So the whole aspect of ripping and tearing can end up being... Um, used very creatively, even though I know it's not what was meant from the but I'm we supposed to use it creatively. But um, th- I've been very involved with ripping and tearing for many, many years. Very nice. And very it's just nice. one of the techniques I yep. use in
1: my life. Oh, very interesting. Thank you. Very interesting. Yeah, Lauren.
2: I just just what we were
5: talking about when to give up. Um, there's a there's a term used in medical ethics, especially when you work in intensive care, and I was an intensive care pharmacist for a long time, called futility. And the, the whole concept of futility was yeah. you could pour in all the antibiotics you want, you can try and keep the guy's blood pressure up, you can dialyze him, but you, you're prolonging the death process, but you're not increasing life. And I think we can take that concept of futility to a lot of things like flogging a dead horse do you stay in a marriage that's a disaster when everybody's going to be miserable do you do you stay in a city that you moved into and you realize oh my god what a mistake I'm absolutely miserable I think I'd better move back so I think that the concept of futility um, can be used a lot there the other thing is just to in reply to andrea you know there's Leonard. Cohen it remind me of Leonard Cohen's there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. So I think that's very much a part of 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 the tearing process that Andrea is describing.
1: Yeah, that's great. So just a, just a closing uh, thought here before we wrap up today. You know, I think one of the things we learn—tell me if this resonates for in your experience—is that when in complex moral decisions, we never we or uh, never is a bad, bad word. We rarely feel great, regardless of which decision we make. Right, right. And I think sometimes we hope in a complex moral decision, that in making the right choice, we'll feel relieved. And yet, that's why it's a complex moral decision. Right? Because neither choice is perfect. Right? And and that's why it can be so paralyzing. Um, and, and I think, Lauren, I appreciate you bringing up the end of life concern because my goodness someone is suffering do we prolong that suffering or do we move towards death how can you possibly feel good in either scenario right um and, and or so too like in the divorce case like carol you know i'm so appreciative you did like a, a divorce for most people yes there might be liberating parts to it but in general feels really horrible right um for most people yeah, with different stages to it and yet staying in a staying in a um uh, in a marriage that is not serving oneself or anyone else, is also feels really hard. So that's what happens in complex moral decisions. And you know, one, yeah. one, um, one philosopher said just before Andrea, one philosopher said um, that um, uh, that that moral regret means holding regret for um, for um, for the decision we we did not make even as we knew it's it's still the decision we would not make right basically regretting that we couldn't make both choices and um we don't have to go too far with that but let's say we can choose a or b we know a is more right than b but we continue to feel the regret that we couldn't choose b that's only natural even though we made the best of the decisions yeah yeah andrea
2: i was going to mention abortion oh yeah absolutely right decision. And I will never get over feeling. Exactly. You know, sad about that.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, I think abortion is, is is another just perfect example here of how you can never feel right in either choice, or the case where someone gives birth, and puts the child up for adoption. I mean, there's yeah. different pains that come with each of these, mm-hmm. each of these models. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I, you know, I, I, I oh, uh, oh, Andrew, I just, I just saw you chatted that. Sorry. And so and so I think that, one of the things our spiritual lives can do is to help us to hold equanimity to keep a sense of inner balance while we exist in a murky imperfect world of complex moral decisions where nothing will always feel right right nothing will feel and in the pandemic i feel it literally all the time and that we realize that in every choice we make, I mean, what do they call it in economics? Opportunity cost, right? In every choice we make, there was another choice we could have made. There's always a loss to a gain, right? To every choice, there's another choice. And in and experiencing that, we always, when one is young, it's just exciting to go do something new or to change and not realizing how much was lost at that time as well. You know, when a, when a child moves out of a parent's home to go to college, the, the child is usually mostly just thrilled this is amazing i got free keg party you know awesome and the parents is like crying okay it's bittersweet but right. the parent's like oh my goodness my baby what is going on here and then the child realizes later like okay maybe two years later 20 or 50 years later that actually it, there was something traumatic to this uh to this rift right? but it's like an amazing it's an amazing thing how long it ter- takes us to to you know to learn this in any case friends um we are all not only a, par- a part of ripping, but people are ripping around us. People are ripping around us. And not only do we have to decide what to unrip and unsew in order to resow, but how to understand all the ripping that's happening around us and how that affects um, us as well. Um, I, you know, Think about gentrification. You know, what does it mean for your neighborhood to fundamentally change around you? Think about a pandemic and how the world is evolving. And so I just pray that you'll be gentle with each other and be gentle with yourself as we live in such a time of, of harshness and, uh, and, and challenges. Wishing you many blessings for a great day and Hanukkah Sameach for night six.